Hello, my friends, and welcome again to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points to Jesus, who he is and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you for joining me, friends. This is our fourth episode from the book of Exodus. Just a, a recap as a way to catch us up and also to flow into this fourth theme that we want to look at. We began by examining how the book of Exodus is actually the continuation of the story that begins in the book of Genesis. That Exodus, while itself is a self-contained narrative, we are not to read it in that way, but rather as the next chapter in God's story of redemption. Our second theme was how the entire story of the Exodus, and really the entire book of Exodus, showcases God's desire to be known as the supreme Lord of Lords and King of Kings, not only by the Israelites, but by all people. Our third theme that we looked at was how God rescues his people from slavery. And we said that while this was a literal slavery, a literal slavery to the Egyptians for the people of Israel, we are within our warrants and we are wise to sort of see this expansion of a theme to what God does for us in salvation. But the interesting thing about the book of Exodus is that it continues past the Exodus. The Exodus happens properly in chapters 12, 13, and 14, But the book of Exodus has 40 chapters. We don't stop reading at Exodus 14 with the parting of the Red Sea because the Exodus event, the parting of the Red Sea, the defeat of the Egyptians, is simply a means to an end. And that end is the covenant. And that's what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about how Moses discloses Yahweh's gracious provision of his covenant with Israel. Mount Sinai is a critical moment in the nation of Israel's history. They're going to be here for one year, and this one-year stay is going to take up the rest of the book of Exodus, all of the book of Leviticus, and the first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers. There are 187 chapters in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and 59 of those chapters happen at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is significant because it's the same place that Yahweh speaks to Moses at, at the burning bush. And Moses' return to Mount Sinai is the fulfillment of a divine promise. As God says to him in Exodus 3.12, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So Moses bringing the people to Mount Sinai is a sign that God has kept his promise. And at Mount Sinai, Yahweh is going to formalize his relationship with Israel through a covenant. He is going to determine and define the relationship that he is in with the nation of Israel by giving it the covenant, by making gracious promises to them and binding them to him in a covenant ceremony. And at Sinai, Yahweh reveals to his people how to live in response to his gracious redemption. God does not free Israel from slavery and say, okay, you're on your own. Go do whatever you want. No, rather, he frees them and says, now let me teach you how to live in relationship with me. So God is going to enter into a covenant. And the covenant ceremony begins not with laws, but with a reminder of Yahweh's gracious choosing and salvation of Israel. He says in Exodus 19, 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. So God says, I have chosen you, I have defeated your enemies, and I have brought you here to myself. A covenant is much deeper, much more intimate than just a contract. And I I think we would do well to think about a covenant in terms of a marriage ceremony. It's a personal commitment between two covenant partners. Israel has been granted a gracious redemption. They have been invited to enter into a relationship with the God of the universe, and they have been given a mission. 
The mission is given in Exodus 19, 6. God says that they shall be to him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And in response to Yahweh's choosing of them, in response to Yahweh's redemption of them, and in response to Yahweh's mission that he's offering them, the people respond and commit themselves to Yahweh before they even hear the law. Exodus 19.8, the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And from here on out, obedience to God's law will reveal a heart of gratitude for Yahweh's grace. And disobedience to the law will reveal just the opposite, a heart of ingratitude for Yahweh's grace. Also notice that before a single law is given, before the Ten Commandments are uttered, Yahweh yet again reminds them of his grace. In Exodus 20, 1 and 2, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I have graciously freed you and redeemed you, Israel. I've not done this on a conditional basis. I have freed you and redeemed you because I love you and I have chosen you. And now I'm going to give you my law as an expression of my perfect character so that you can enjoy my blessing. The purpose of this covenant is Israel's mission to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. Remember, the covenant with the nation of Israel is not a new thing, as if God's scrapping the Abrahamic covenant, but rather it's how God is going to accomplish his promises to Abraham. If Israel is faithful, God says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now those first and third phrases when he says treasured possession and holy nation, they emphasize the special status that Israel has. As it says in Deuteronomy 7, 6, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Though Yahweh owns everything, Israel is of immense, you could even say utmost value to him amongst all the peoples of the world. Israel has been set apart to serve God and display his holiness to the world. And that speaks to that middle phrase where Israel is called to be a kingdom of priests. They serve as mediators, as go-betweens between God and the nations. They are to represent God to the nations by living out God's laws, by living out in reflection of God's character. And they represent the nations to God by praying for them and interceding for them. Their job is to be a light to the nations, a city set on a hill. This idea of being a kingdom of priests, an entire nation of priests, is expressed beautifully in Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. Moses says, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? If Israel will live out the commands of God, the other nations, the people of the nations, will see the generosity and kindness and mercy and peace that the nation of Israel is characterized by, and they will say, I want in on that. My God doesn't love me like that. My God doesn't serve me. My God demands that I serve him. My God oppresses me and exploits me, and I live in fear all the day long. I want to know this God. This combination of royal and priestly functions that God is giving to Israel should remind us of Adam and Eve in the garden. 
Adam and Eve are named as sort of vice regents, kings and queens in God's kingdom in Genesis 1, made in God's image, given dominion and rule over God's creation. And they serve really as priests in God's sanctuary in Genesis chapter 2, told to tend the garden and keep it. And if that reminds you of Adam and Eve, good. It should. Because we are seeing another sort of chance for God's people to do this right. Adam and Eve were given this role, this responsibility. They failed. And so our hopes are high that perhaps Israel will succeed. Now we know as Christians that Israel is going to fail. And that's not going to be until Jesus that someone is going to come along who is going to be the king and the priest that God has called his people to be. But we are obviously getting way ahead of ourselves. The purpose statement of the covenant is in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. If you obey, if you keep my covenant, then you are my treasure possession for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel is going to enjoy the blessing of God to reflect God's character out into the world to bring him glory. And this is how the nation of Israel is going to fulfill the climax of the Abrahamic covenant. The climax of the Abrahamic covenant is not the great name or the great nation or the great land. It's that in Abraham's family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the nation of Israel is how God intends to do that. So once we've entered into this covenant ceremony and they've committed themselves to Yahweh, Yahweh gives them his law. And his law begins with the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments are distinct from the rest of the law for several reasons. One, they were spoken directly by God. God spoke all these words saying, and then he utters the Ten Commandments. Two, they were written by his finger, as it says in Exodus 31, 18. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. The Ten Commandments yielded a response from the people, as it says in Exodus 20, 18 through 21, that when God has done speaking these Ten Commandments over the nation of Israel, they respond and say, we will obey. And they respond in worship and fear. The Ten Commandments are the basic terms of the covenant between Israel and Yahweh, and the rest of the laws are how the laws are to be applied in specific situations. The illustration I use is if you can imagine like going into something like Google Drive, and you've got all these folders with different labels, and you double-click on the folder, and inside that folder are all of these files that pertain to that topic on the folder. So you can think of the Ten Commandments, right? You have no other gods before me, don't worship any idols, don't take God's name in vain, honor the Sabbath, and so on and so forth. Each of these are sort of the big topics, and the individual commands after it would fall under one of those 10 categories, 10 headings. Here's how you would actually live out obedience to this particular command. Now, traditionally, the 10 commandments have been broken down into two groups. There's laws relating to God, and there's laws relating to neighbors. The remaining laws after the 10 commandments, they begin and end with laws relating to worship, calling God's people to be holy as they worship God, and concerning loyalty to God alone. Exodus 20, 23 through 26, and you shall not make any gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. Right? So loyalty to God alone. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. At every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. They were to have a plain, unadorned altar because God knows that in our sinfulness, we will take every good thing and twist it into an idol. 
And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. As you go up the steps, traditionally people, just the way you dressed back then, you would be exposing yourself underneath your garments to God. And so God wants every part of his worship to reflect his holiness and loyalty to God alone. After the laws relating to worship, we get civil laws relating to Israel as a nation. Now, just just for the sake of clarity, my friends, we are not a nation. As Christians, we do not have a, a nation of Christendom that we belong to. And so these laws are given to the nation state of Israel. Israel is now transitioning from being the family of Abraham to being the nation of Israel. And nations need laws. And so we would be foolish if we were to just try and copy and paste the laws given at Mount Sinai and put them on top of our American culture or you know, whatever culture and whatever country you live in. Now, God's law reflects his holiness. It reflects his character. So there's wise principles for us to learn here, but we are not intended living on this side of the cross to simply copy and paste these laws onto our societies. Now, as you look at these civil laws, you're going to see laws relating to slavery and freedom, injury and compensation, property and restitution. And if you are made uncomfortable by laws regarding slavery, which I understand, we did an episode in season one uh, regarding what the Bible teaches us about slavery. So I would encourage you to go and check that out if you'd like to learn more about what the Bible says about slavery. Now, after these civil laws, there are laws caring for the most vulnerable. For example, Exodus 22, 22 through 24, God says, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. These are moral imperatives. And what's interesting about these is in the previous section with injury and compensation, property and restitution, there are exact formulas given, right? If you steal this, you owe three times that or four times that, or if you do this, then that happens. But when it comes to caring for the most vulnerable, there's not specific penalties or specific percentages attached to them. These are laws calling for Israel to love their neighbor in a way that doesn't look for the limit, but rather says, I'm going to love you as I have been loved. And so that's a great principle for us to think about as Christians. Now, every time we as Christians get to a section of laws, we start to get really uncomfortable, really confused. Am I supposed to skip reading this? Am I supposed to obey all of these, none of these, some of these? So what are some thoughts that we can offer on the law? Well, First, Israel's covenant obedience, obedience to the specific commands given by God at Mount Sinai, were intended to be a response of gratitude to the grace of God. Remember that nobody gets into relationship with God by law keeping. Rather, we keep God's law as a response of sheer gratitude for what God has done for us. It is not a duty by which they're supposed to earn God's love. So that's the first thing that was true for them. That's true for us. Second thought about the law is the purpose of a covenant is to create new relationships. You can think about a marriage ceremony. When you go to a wedding and you see a man and a woman and they join together there at the altar of the church, they walked in as two individuals, but they're going to walk out, join together in the sight of God and man as husband and wife, a new relationship which is created there in front of you. And this is what God is doing with Israel. By entering into a covenant, he is creating a new relationship between him and the people of Israel. But every relationship has to have rules. My wife and I got married back in 2016, and 
we had to quickly figure out what are the laws of our household? Who does what? Right? Okay, who's doing primarily doing the grocery shopping? Who's mowing the yard? Who is doing the cooking? And who's taking out the trash? Right? We have these different rules and laws because you need laws to regulate existing relationships. Laws don't create relationships. Laws regulate and keep harmony in relationships. The specific purpose of the Ten Commandments is to promote holiness. As it says in Exodus 20, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. God has given us these laws to lead us into holiness, so that we may not sin and instead may enjoy the blessing of God. Fifth, as we've said before, the Ten Commandments express the morally perfect character of Yahweh. God's character does not change. Therefore, the types of things that God likes do not change. Whether you were a member of the Old Covenant or a member of the New Covenant, God loves when you love Him, and He hates when you worship idols. God loves when you are honest and hardworking, and God hates when you lie and are lazy. And that does not change. And so while we do not live under the authority of the Ten Commandments per se, the Ten Commandments do express the morally perfect character of Yahweh. And we study the Ten Commandments to see what does our God like and what does our God want to see in us. Sixth, what does Jesus say about the law? Well, here's how he sums it up. In Matthew 22, he's asked, what's, what's the greatest commandment of them all? And his answer is in verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus takes all 613 commands in the Torah and he reduces them to two. Love God, love your neighbor. That's what God is after. All the Ten Commandments, all the other commandments that come after the Ten Commandments are just different practical ways of loving God and loving your neighbor. According to Jesus, the main purpose of the law is not for us to check off our boxes, but rather to give us an opportunity to practice justice and mercy and faithfulness. So that's how we view the law, as an expression of God's perfect character. The goal of the law is to lead us into holiness, to teach us and give us practical steps that we can love God and love our neighbor so we can act out justice and mercy and faithfulness, reflecting the character of God out into the world. However, as you know from your own experience, and you probably know from reading the Bible, Israel does not keep the covenant. They break God's laws over and over and over again. And the old covenant law leads to the death of the nation of Israel. Not because there's something wrong with the law, but because there's something wrong with their hearts. Israel has the same hard hearts that afflicted Pharaoh. They don't want to submit to God. They don't want to love God. They don't want to love their neighbor. And God's righteous law carries with it righteous penalties. And for lawbreakers, the penalty is death. Israel breaks the law. They ignore God's warnings. They ignore his pleading with them to repent. And they suffer the covenant penalties of death and exile. And as we read this, understand, friends, this is our story. We have those same hard hearts. We desperately need a Savior. As it says in Romans 3.20, By works of the law, no human being will be justified or declared righteous in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In our unregenerate pre-Christ state, all the law does for us is show us how sinful we are and how unable we are to measure up to God's standard. Friends, we need 
a savior. And we're going to see in the sacrificial system, specifically when we get to the book of Leviticus, how God is teaching his people about their need for a savior and pointing them ahead to the savior who is to come. But for now, my friends, take up and read. God bless.